If this is Austin I still love you I might try to explain what the geography was of South Congress Avenue in the earlier days and the uh, where Live Oak Street is and the Austin Theater is there now in the beginning of the prayer place. That was what you'd call the, the south end, the end of Congress Avenue, South Congress. It dead end into the into uh, the south side of Live Oak Street and Mr. LaPrail, John LaPrail owned uh, quite a little bit of land in there that's later called the LaPrail Edition. He put on a, a subdivision there. But South Congress then was dead end there and it turned to the east, turned uh, east and what about a block to what they call the old Lone Oak filling station. And then it ran into what we call the San Antonio Highway and the old Post Road and the King's Highway. King's Trail, KT Trail they called it. But the, the, that was the end of South Congress and now South Congress goes is cut straight on through and comes out about all tarps and that was the end of the LaPrail place. But this old Lone Oak filling station was a, a cut and dried place to make money for a filling station because uh, you had to almost drive through it to get off of out of Austin uh, into the uh, on the San Antonio Highway, and it was perhaps one of the most uh, uh, the best uh, filling stations in Austin about the say about 1920 on up till they they changed the, the highway there. There was a, a Mr. John Wanslow who owned the land where where Lost where Onion Creek Golf Course is now, told me that, that when he was uh, just a young man. In the, back in the 70s, 1870s, that the last Indian that uh, was killed around Austin was killed behind this old lone oak, uh, big old live oak tree there. Said that he got caught for stealing something out around Onion Creek, and he must have been one of the old Tonk Indians. And anyway, they chased him, and he was a fighting back at them. And he got behind that tree, he got that close to Austin, and he knew he couldn't go any further without being caught in Austin. So he fought it out with the men that chasing him, and he was killed behind that big old live oak tree that's called the Lone Oak Filling Station. How true that is, I don't know, but I'm sure Mr. Wanlow wouldn't tell me any tales. I had hoped to get all of the, I had hoped to get all of the history of the east part of South Austin and, and uh, on one hour's tape. Now I've gone an hour and a half, but uh, I'm going to jump on over to the west side of, of South Congress Avenue there and, and start up down at the river and go southward like I did on the, on the east side of South Congress, and we'll uh, pick up some lost threads as we go from, and as, uh, as I think of them. But the old, uh, on, the, on the west side of South Congress Avenue, uh, of course, up until the middle 30s, they were all of that from uh, uh, the river south to the Deaf and Dumb Institute, and that's what the, uh, what the school, the Deaf School, they call it now, but it was called the Deaf and Dumb Institute back in, when it was first organized. And I know my, some of the first buildings there were built when my father was on the board uh, of the deaf school. I don't know how I got on, but his name is on the cornerstone down there. And uh, we were very proud of that. And I do remember that, that back in, uh, on the early days, way back uh, before 1912 even, that we were uh, socially inclined to be involved with all the people on the deaf school faculty, although we were uh, lived two miles south of there. And the boys would come visit with us. And I'll mention those, those families as we go along. But in these old cornerstone lands, like even in the Fed Adam Memorial Church, we had a, a cornerstone back in uh, the teens and the 20s. Well, it was uh, popular to have the Masonic Lodge to, to come in and have quite a little ceremony, and, and, uh, and they put a big old uh, 
cornerstone. Uh, if you could buy granite, you'd get one granite, and it's engraved with the names of the people who were responsible for putting the building up. And, and then they'd put a, the, one of the daily newspapers in a hollowed place out in the cornerstone. And I remember one occasion they, they, they put a, a horn frog in. They, the theory then was, and somebody said, that a horn frog would live forever, and this was going to test that theory. They're going to put the horn frog in this cornerstone and a hole in it and, and then uh, seal him up. And when they took it, when they took the building down, maybe a hundred years later, they're going to see if, the, if the, the frog was still alive. But I should imagine what they found if they ever took one of them down with a cornerstone that had a, a horn frog in it. They found something that looked like King Tut. But anyway, Papa's name was on this, and still is on the cornerstone of one of the buildings down at the deaf school now. But that area in there was was subject to overflow, as everybody knew, and it didn't begin to to really uh, build up until. Oh, I would say uh, in the 20s, people began to get a little bit of, uh, yeah, had enough guts to go in there and build houses on it. Well, there's a fellow named M.H. Crockett, which everyone knows in Austin, and Mr. Crockett had foresight enough to, to um, foresight enough to, to go in there and buy all that lowland that fronted on Congress Avenue on both the east and the west side that was worthless. Uh, he got it for practically nothing, and then he started letting people dump their, their making fill on either side, and he filled up. Uh, to where you could put business houses, and all those business houses in from uh, uh, where you'd say Barton Springs Road turns off of Congress Avenue and where Riverside starts on the east, all of that area in there belonged to Mr. M.H. Crockett, and he got it for practically nothing, and he filled it up for practically nothing, and he got rich on it. Now, I know that after one of the last flood they had, Mr. Crockett had filled up the area right in there where uh, Barton Springs Road turns off of the uh, Congress Avenue right at the foot of the dam on the south, I mean, south side of the bridge there. And he had built a, a, a brick building, a store called, and the cash carry people had, had leased it from him. And they had, uh, they had, uh, during the storm and the flood in there, that was just completely covered with water. The water in 1933, I believe it was, or 34, right in that, uh, the last flood we had, the water got up within two feet of the bottom of the bridge, and they thought the bridge was going to go out. It is so bad that the railroad people uh, parked on the railroad bridge, uh, uh, Freight car, freight train full of rocks to hold it down. But anyway, Mr. Crockett uh, uh, had this lease to the cash carry people, and, and uh, they wanted to break the lease when they were ruined, and their business was all ruined. And uh, he hired me to represent him. And uh, we had a suit. Mr. Jim Hart was on the other side in the case, and we were not right. But anyway, Mr. Crockett was the type of an individual that, that he had to have his say in court. And so... Uh, he insisted on being put on the witness stand, although he didn't know anything that was of any value to the case as far as law is concerned. And so we thought we would just uh, introduce him. I asked him his name and where he lived and, and then uh, get him off the witness stand as quickly as we could so that he wouldn't do the case any more harm than is necessary. But when we asked Mr. Crockett his name, then he, had, he took out a little pad of some kind he had in his pocket and he started talking. And he talked for perhaps 30, 40 minutes without anybody asking him any questions. And when he got through, his case, of course, was... Uh, had gone out the window. Uh, what little case we had had gone out the window. We lost the lawsuit. However, that didn't make Mr. Crockett a poor man. He still owned all the land in there where the, uh, the, this, the, where the fill is, where the Nighthawk is, and all that stuff in there. Then when I first started practicing law in 28, along in, that, in the early 30s, uh, there was a lot of sand and gravel uh, being taken out of the river on the south side of the, of the river uh, by... Uh, R.E. Jaynes and Mr. Uh, Moore, Mr. Uh, 
they called him Whitey Moore, W.C. Moore was his name. And I, then the Moffrey's boys owned the land in there where the where the fish restaurant is now. Where, uh, and then uh, I want to describe uh, one incident in particular between Mr. R.E. James, that's the senior, Mr. Ralph James Sanger. He was always full of fun. And uh, Mr. Moore was a fine man. I represented Mr. Moore, and we called him Whitey because he was always on the defensive. But it seemed that uh, Ralph James had leased from the Morphis boys the land right on the west side of the bridge. And he was uh, mining uh, uh, sand and gravel there and had his gravel screens right up against the bridge. And then Mr. Moore's land came in next and run all the way down to where South First extended would, would run on out to the river. You have a bridge in there now where the, where the, the bridge goes across there. And then on the, on the uh, west side of that point, there was uh, Mr. James owned it again. And uh, Mr. Moore had uh, uh, put... Uh, a guy wire uh, up where he could uh, uh, hold his screens and things up on the on the land that he was mining, sand and gravel, in between the, the two tracks that, that belonged to Ralph James. And there was a question, always has been, where the east line of the uh, Henry P. Hill League is. It was supposed to come down the uh, South First Street somewhere, and it went all the way out west to, to, the, uh, to the dam, the west side of the Tom Miller Dam, and that was one of the last uh, grants made by the Mexican government to the, before the uh, 1836 when Texas took the land away from them. But anyway, where that land line was was within 20 or 30 feet uh, uh, mythically. And so Mr. James took the position that, that uh, Moore had mistaken the line so he, and that his guy wire was over on his land. And so every month Ralph James would send Mr. Moore a letter, a bill for uh, $100 for rental for uh, trespassing on his land. Well, invariably Mr. Moore would come up to my office and, and he would be whining and won't know what to do about it. Well, I gave him some very fine advice about what to do about the letter and sent it right on back to, to Ralph. I knew Ralph was doing it just to keep the old man upset, and that's what he was doing. And uh, so uh, then they had a, Ralph had another way of, 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 uh, of uh, making Mr. Moore unhappy. Uh, at night, of course, all those machines and all the screening apparatus was and the, and the mining apparatus was shut down. Well, Ralph owned uh, land on the west side, as I said, and he had some Caterpillar tractors, and when uh, Mr. Moore was at home sleeping, well, Ralph would run his Caterpillar tractors right down the sandbar on, on Moore's land from the west side to the east side, so he could use it the next day in the other, the other operation. And, of course, when Mr. Moore would come to work in the morning, he'd see these cat tracks on his, on his uh, sand beach down there, and he knew Ralph had done it. And Ralph did it for meanness, and then he'd, Mr. Moore would come see me again about that, about how he'd gone and join Ralph from trespassing on his land. Well, they had quite a little game on it, but I think uh, probably either one of them would have been glad to be pallbearers for the other. Ralph had not, had not died yet, but uh, I'm sure that Mr. Moore had been dead for a long time, but it was quite a little game, and, and uh, we all got a lot of kick out of it. I know that Judge Ike White was the attorney at that time for Ralph James. Later on, my brother Polk and I represented him because we were very, very close personal friends, but my office at that time was on the 14th floor of the Capitol National Bank building, then called the Norwood building, and it was right next door to Judge White. And I know when Mr. Moore would come in and complain to me, I would uh, hold my face as fast as, as long as I could. Mr. Moore left and got on the elevator. I'd go in and see Judge I. White and tell him what my complaint was, and we'd all have a big laugh about it. Nobody was hurt, and, and uh, so, but we all had a good laugh. I want to get back now to the time before 1912 about the deaf school. I know there, uh, as I said, my father was on the board, and uh, he had something to do, I'm sure, about who were on the faculty, who was on the faculty. And back about that time, I know Mrs.
Homer Thornberry. They lived on Johanna Street up there. Mr. Thornberry was a was deaf also, and Mrs. Thornberry was deaf, and she was a teacher at the school, and Mr. Thornberry was a carpenter. And that was about the time that Homer was born. I think it's about 1989. But anyway, uh, Papa was on the faculty, and my brothers, uh, my older brothers, were uh, went to school with the the uh, the uh, faculty members of the of the uh, deaf school. There was very few of the faculty members on the deaf school who were actually deaf and had to go to school there, or their children had to go to school there. Most of the children were normal, like Homer. Now Homer was born of of parents that were both deaf and and speechless, but he was not, and he apparently was a very normal sort of an individual from his record. And um, but there was a several families down there. The Blattners, I remember very well. The Blattners, uh, uh, they had uh, one older boy named Bill Blattner, and then there was a David Blattner, about Johnny's age. Bill Blattner was about Earl's age, and then there, like I say, David Blattner, and then there was a, a one about Polk's age, and then their their youngest child was a girl named Belle Blattner. She was about my age, and she was black-headed and a beautiful girl. And I know that uh, there was a Taylor family, and uh, there was down there, and there was a Thomas family. And they would all visit in our homes on Saturdays or on alternate Saturdays. The Blattner boys and the Taylor boys would come off up and visit us and, and play in the woods out there uh, by our, our home. And then on uh, the other Saturdays, we'd go down and, and visit with them. And we got acquainted with a lot of the students in the, uh, in the deaf school. They all knew us by, and they'd speak to us when we was, they was on the street by making signs, you see. And, and then we had games with, the, with them. But I remember in the summertime that... that uh, we would go down to the deaf school when it was uh, was out, and the chairs all had gone home, and they had these big old round uh, things that looked like silos for for uh, fire escapes. You you slide down them. You you could jump in them, and we'd get an old grass sack from a feast or somewhere, and we'd climb up or uh, climb up the fire escapes, and then get on these uh, grass sacks and slide down. And we had a lot of fun doing that during the during the the daytime, then on Saturday mornings or any other time during the holidays. I remember there was one instance when Polk was, one Sunday, Polk was off down visiting the uh, Blattner boys down at uh, uh, the deaf school, and he came home in a Surrey. He had it during the Surrey days because he got, they brought him home in a Surrey, and it must have been about 1912. He had been shot in the in his left arm with a 22 rifle. One of the boys down there had a rifle, and they got to shooting around at targets and things, and Polk happened to get in the way or a bullet blast and hit Polk in the arm, and he was shot in the in the left arm with a uh, with a 22 rifle bullet. The last we heard of the Blattner family, they were in the deaf school at Oklahoma, at Sulphur, Oklahoma. And then uh, the uh, uh, one, the boy about my age in the Thomas family was called Sidney Thomas. Now where he went to, I don't remember. But uh, they would be transferred or take jobs in some other place. And uh, I forget, uh, the, the Taylor boy was named Vern, or Vernon Taylor. He was about Edgar's age. And uh, uh, I missed one of the Blattner boys in there somewhere because there were three bigger ones. During the night, uh, I have picked up another thread or two that I missed in this discourse, and I was going to tell about the, I've forgotten the name of the younger uh, Todd boy, who was Lawrence Todd's younger brother, and his name was Cockwit, Cockwit Todd, and Cockwit uh, uh, worked as a, as a salesman in one of the, the, the men's stores in Austin, men's clothing stores in Austin for years and years, and Cockett was also in my Boy Scout troop about 1925 and 26 when I was scoutmaster in South Austin. And then the little Benson boy, the younger one than me, that I couldn't think of the uh, uh, yesterday, 
there was the older girl, the, the Benson girl, and Barry Benson, the older boy, and then Blackwood Benson, and the youngest boy was named Albert Benson. And I remember one particular incident that they had. They had a, an old swimming pool in the back of their yard. It didn't have any water in it because I don't know who lived there before, but it wouldn't hold water, but it was a, a concrete swimming pool, the first one I had ever seen. And on one occasion, uh, they had been down on the Colorado River uh, fishing and uh, hunting and doing what boys do on the Colorado River, and Barry was, uh, I think Barry spent most of his time down there, the oldest Benson boy, and he found a little alligator. Now, how he'd ever got up as far as Austin from the coast or Louisiana, wherever they come from, I don't know, but they had a little alligator down there that was about, I'd say, a foot long, maybe a little longer. And so they had this thing caged in this, this swimming pool, uh, this concrete hole in the ground they had there. And uh, they'd play, they had me fighting the death. They'd gonna throw me in there and let that thing eat me up. And uh, I remember one occasion, the boys had, had uh, gotten a, a tomahawk, a stone tomahawk that one of their kinfolks had uh, from over in, in uh, Mississippi had sent to them. And I was uh, collecting arrowheads at that time, and I just wanted that tomahawk more than I wanted anything in the world. And so we made a deal with them. About that time, <clears throat> uh, somehow or another, I'd come and come in possession of a raccoon. Somebody caught it in South Austin, and it was our pet, and we had it hemmed up on our backyard It was and our back porch. It was screened. And so that must have been after 1912, because we were living in our two-story house then. But this coon was uh, pinned up on the back porch, and it uh, it was depredating pretty badly. And so Mama told me the coon had to go. So I worked out a deal with the Benson boys to where they gave me this tomahawk for this raccoon. So we were all good friends and traders of a, of a sort. <clears throat> then there was one family that I passed over that I should not have done so. The, it was the Fruth family. And they lived down in somewhere on Circle Avenue. They were kind of halfway kin to us. My uh, Uncle Fossilman, the Fossilman family, who married in the Papa's family, was, was kin to them somehow or another. But I, know, I remember they had one girl, and she must have been maybe the youngest. But uh, I, I've seen her just recently, and she uh, was secretary for years and years of Tom Kellum, a lawyer in Austin. And I think she was secretary for George Shelley for a while when Tom was associated with her. And she was a very fine legal secretary. Then the oldest boy was Roy Priest. I mean, Roy, Roy Fruth. He was a, a, a baseball player. And I didn't get well acquainted with him. He must have been about Johnny's age and maybe my brother Earl's age. And then Paul Fruth, the youngest boy, was uh, uh, Polk's age. And I remember Paul for oh for years. Now, yes, he died about four years ago, but he was a, also a salesman in one of the clothing stores in Austin, married Schaefer and Brown for years and years. And, of course, we always traded with, with uh, the boys from South Austin. There was one other prominent family that uh, was out there, and it was before my time. It was the Blum family, and that was the one that Blum Creek was named after. And uh, Blum Creek is a creek that runs just on the west side of Travis Heights before you get into what we call then South Austin. And uh, it comes out down about where the old White Rock was on the river and flows all the way back up and heads somewhere up around where St. Edward's College is and flows north and south. There was the Blum family that had a farm out there or on the prairie. And that is, uh, you'll have to uh, envision that uh, th Highway 35 not being there, it's hard to do that. But all of that was prairie country and farmland. Well, the, Mr. Tom Blum, who was the youngest boy of that family, was much older than me. He must have been 15 years older than me because he was an older man in 1936 when I bought my first land in Westlake Hills, uh, or the tract I bought from the San Antonio Loan and Trust Company. And, of course, the first year that my note come due, well, I wasn't able to pay for it, so I'd become acquainted with Mr. Tom Blum, and he was rather well-to-do, and, and uh, he loaned me $500 to, to uh, 
to pay my note off on, on, the, on that note. And he and I were good friends. I represented him at that time. And P.S. If this is Austin I still love